0: Well, one of the uh, realities of COVID, and uh, maybe you don't want to talk about it very much, but there have been, I think, some realities around words, in particular vocabulary as it relates to COVID, that I think if we were to go back three years ago, we would all say, yeah, I didn't really think too much about those words. You know, you think about one of them, unprecedented. How many times have you heard the word unprecedented as over the last couple of years? Or how about restrictions? or regulations, or travel requirements. I mean, these are all terms that, of course, we knew about a few years ago, but to actually think about the realities of what it meant is totally, totally different today. Uh, As many of you will know, we traveled to South Africa in January, and so leading up to that time, we were very keen to find out what are the restrictions, what are the travel requirements? Will we be able to gain access to the country of South Africa. What will we need? Now, I have a story that I would have loved to share this morning. I'll have to share it another time. But one of the requirements to enter South Africa was negative uh, PCR tests. And two members of our family tested positive on our PCR tests the day before we were scheduled to fly to South Africa. Now, God, by his grace, as well as uh, doctor's notes, we believe, allowed us to access and to get into South Africa. But as you can imagine, this was deeply concerning for us as we began this trip. Yet once again, the illumination of travel, of requirements, of access, can I get in, will I be allowed to access South Africa, was heavy on our minds. And so as we come to the text this morning, we are reading about regulations. We're reading about ways of access points of different sections. We're reading about the earthly tabernacle, which you can read extensively about in Exodus, uh, in in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And here we come to the text today, and we've arrived at a section in which the author, uh, and a few years ago, we did, a, we did a series through the book of Hebrews. And at that point, we called the author the pastor. And what the pastor is doing for us is telling us how Jesus and his work on the cross, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and His, his in his ascension, is ultimately superior to the law to the regulations, to the requirements, to the restrictions. Not saying that they do not matter, but they are simply not as superior and sufficient to the work of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, let's go to the text. Let's go to Hebrews 9 verse 1. As I mentioned, we'll be going through Hebrews 9 and chapter 10 over the the next few times that we are together. And so I simply want to make a few comments as we journey together this morning verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant, covenant, notice this word, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. I've titled this section of verses 1 to 5, Necessary Regulations or Necessary Requirements. These are requirements and regulations that, as I said, were put in place by God for the people. You can read about it in Exodus 25 to 31 specifically about this meeting place with God. And that's what the tabernacle was. It was a place where the people could meet with God. It was actually a mobile place that individuals could meet with God. And in this tabernacle, there were two sections. There was the holy place. And here in verses 1 to 5, we read about some of the items and elements that were there. There was then the most holy place that had other items there. Each of these elements, each of these pieces, each of these artifacts, remembering and pointing to God's covenant faithfulness, God's deliverance, through the life of the children of Israel. In verse 6, let's go there. We read that these preparations, these regulations, having been followed, thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But notice this, restricted access, verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without, notice, taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This section I have titled, Restricted Access. We are given these further details about these various two places, the priest's, would enter into the holy place, this first section, and they would access it regularly for the purpose of their ritual duties, ultimately interceding on behalf of, of the people to God. We then have the high priest that were told that once a year would enter this next section, the most holy place. He would go through into this section on a day that the Israelites knew as Yom Kippur, And he would enter in and he would take blood that would cover his own sin, but then also cover the unintentional sins of the people. Now, this is interesting. Think about this term, unintentional sins of the people. What is this category of sin? Well, in the scriptures, we have sin of commission. These are deliberate acts, deliberate acts of disobedience. We then in the scriptures have sin of omission. This is when we fail to do what we know God has commanded us to do, but we simply fail to do it. Here, however... We're told about a third category. These would be sins committed in ignorance or unintentionally. Those are the sins that we do when we don't even realizing that we are committing them. So this ultimately, what it does is it speaks to the depths of our sin. We're even guilty of sin when we don't even realize it. And so the priest would go in and he would offer this offering. And he would... Take this blood that would cover his own sin as well as covering the sins of the people. Between these two places was a veil. A veil separated the holy place from the most holy place. Andrew Murray comments on the significance and the symbol of this veil. He writes this, The veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and a sinful man. They cannot dwell together. The tabernacle thus expressed the union of apparently two conflicting truths. God called man to come and to worship and to serve him, and yet he might not come too near. The veil kept him at a distance. And so this tabernacle, what it did is it signified this not yet system. And as you can imagine, this became central to the Israelites. And so sometimes when I'm reading the scriptures and I'm like, okay, I'm reading the, the pastor as he's writing to these Jews and I'm going, what is their deal? Can't they see that what Jesus has done is so much greater? And they're looking back and they're going, no, this, this temple, this tabernacle, it's, it's central for us. It's central for us. It also was intended and given to the children of Israel to make them distinct to look different than the other nations that were surrounding them. And so they're going, we can't give up on this system. We're just going to become like everybody else who can worship God in whichever way they want to. That's still actually an argument from other religions towards Christianity where it's it's too loosey-goosey. And so in this sense, what is going on? They want to hold on to this system. Now, we can look backwards and say all those regulations, all those requirements. I would suggest that every single one of us, whether we recognize it or not, have subconscious requirements and regulations that we live by at times that we believe will get us better access to God or less access to God. You know, for some of us we're motivated in more of a legalistic way where we say I need to perform for God. If I perform for God, if I have good behavior, God will love me more and therefore I'll have deeper access to him. Have you ever fallen into this way of thinking? And then what we can then happen is then we restrict access for the disobedient people to God and we judge others and we say, "No, you can't come to God. You're not good enough." So there's a a legalistic approach around regulations, but then there's also an approach that's almost license where we say, we say, oh, you know, maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't one, but we still live by regulations. Those regulations, however, are created by ourselves. We say, who is the true me? Who is the true me? And all of those people out there that won't let me be the true me, get away from me. And we are actually defining ourselves as our own God and anyone that gets in the way of us doing what we want to do is also not allowed access. And so as much as we would like to point our fingers and say, those regulations and requirements that those people were following, we also have our own regulations that at times we subconsciously live by. And so this text is also for you and for me. So what are those things that we define? Let's continue. Verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. As long as the first section is still standing. Which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. What this author, what this pastor is now showing us is the actual limitations of of these regulations. The first reason that he says that there is a limitation upon it, he says it's what the Holy Spirit indicates. Well, what is the Holy Spirit indicating? The Holy Spirit is indicating that there is a repetitious repetitious nature of these offerings. It's not like you do it once and then it takes care of it for all time. There needs to continually be done. And so the Holy Spirit in that sense is, is indicating that your sin is not fully covered. You need to continually enter in. The priest needs to continue going in for you. And so there's a limitation. There's an insufficiency to this system. Second limitation, however, he points out in verse 8b to 10 is the reality of the imperfect offerings. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, listen, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So as valuable as the gifts and sacrifices offered are, they cannot perfect nor cleanse the inside They can deal with the outside, but they can't deal with the inside. External acts of worship are purely external. You and I need something that deals with the internal issues of our heart. And we recognize this. Once again, if we go to a way of legalism or if we go to a way of license, we need to keep performing for God so that why he'll love me more. But this is not the gospel. And so here comes the solution. Here comes Jesus. Holy, holy, holy. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all. Think about that phrase, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but what? But by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of of Christ, who through the eternal spirit often himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to what? Serve the living God. What is our author? What is our pastor pointing out? He's saying Christ is superior and Christ is sufficient. He meets every regulation and then he transcends the regulations. He's far greater How or why? Because he can secure you an eternal redemption. Eternity and an eternal redemption. And how does he secure this? By his own blood. By his own sacrifice. Not the blood of goats and bulls and other offerings. By his own blood, which he freely gives for you and for me. What's the significance of Jesus' blood? We read here that Jesus' blood is superior. We read that Jesus' blood has power. Notice what he says. It says that this, the Jesus' blood purifies our conscience from dead works. Well, what is the conscience? Well, the conscience' purpose is it tells us about ourselves. It communicates with you and me what we are. How many of you have ever been up late at night, you couldn't sleep because your conscience was not clear? Maybe you feel like you've done something or you're recognizing, I am not in the right. I am actually in the wrong. And so you could not sleep. What the power of Jesus' blood does when we trust him and we continue submitting ourselves over to him is that the power of his blood purifies our conscience were the regulations that we try to live under. Oh, I've got to do better for God. Oh my goodness, I'm not good enough. He would never accept me. That's gone with Jesus' blood. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says Romans. So through Jesus' shed blood, there is power to cleanse these great fears from our hearts. Richard D. Phillips writes this, This is the simple truth of the Bible, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the application of that blood to our souls by faith, there is no cleansing for our sins or our guilty conscience. I would ask you the question, what are the dead works that you may be still looking to to purify your conscience, and you're recognizing it's not working? Only Jesus. He's the only solution. But then Jesus' blood, yes, it's superior. Yes, it has power. But Jesus' blood also has purpose. Notice what we are saved from and then saved to. So we're saved from our dead works, but then we're saved to serve the living God. The purpose of Jesus' shed blood and then our union with God is so that we might serve him. Charles Spurgeon, to serve the living God is necessary to the happiness of a living man. For this end, we were made and we miss the design of our making if we do not honor our maker. And so Christ is superior, writes our author, writes our pastor. But then secondly, another reality is that you and I now have unrestricted access to God through Christ. Christ's priesthood accomplishes the salvation to which the old covenant, this tabernacle, was only able to point to. He completely and finally takes care of our sin. He atones for it. And he's made a way for you and for me into this most holy place. You maybe considered this before, or maybe you have not. What does it say in Matthew 27, verse 51? When Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was what? Torn in two, from top to bottom. Through Christ, we now have access to the Father. Under this new covenant, the focus now shifts away from a central, earthly tabernacle, The center of our new covenant worship is Jesus Christ. It's a person. It's Jesus. It's all about Him. You may be walked in this morning. I don't know why you're here. I do not know your motivations for why you are here. I do not know the motivations by which you live each and every single day. But as human beings, we struggle between this legalism and this license. And we are invited yet again to be reminded, and maybe you for the very first time, to hear the good news that it's not the regulations that save you, saves you. It's Jesus Christ and his shed blood that saves you, that reconciles you to God, and that purifies and cleanses your conscience. Let's believe this yet again, and maybe for you the very first time, you will believe it. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for what you have done. I thank you for what you have accomplished. Jesus, in this season in the church calendar of Easter, we ponder and we reflect. I pray if there is anyone that is joining us this morning that has maybe more questions, God, that they would make them known. God, maybe someone is ready to commit their life to following you, Jesus. We pray that that would also be the case. I thank you that you take care of our dead works and that we now have the opportunity to serve you. We want to honor you. We want to follow you, Jesus, to serve our living God. Through Christ, thank you. Amen.